Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who enjoyed a 15-year career in the majors. He pitched for the Atlanta Braves, St. Louis Cardinals, Chicago Cubs, Colorado Rockies, Washington Nationals, Arizona Diamondbacks, San Diego Padres, Minnesota Twins, and the Cincinnati Reds. He won 11 or more games for six straight years through 2009. He also started 28 or more games in each of the years 2004 through 2009. His 65 wins from 2004 to 2008 ranked seventh among NHL National League pitchers. He pitched in a World Series, making him one of the few ball players to have played in both a Little League World Series and a Major League World Series. He was the ace of Team Israel at the 2017 World Baseball Classic. He was a starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves in one of the most iconic baseball games in New York history, as on September 21st, 2001, he started against the New York Mets. It is a pleasure to welcome Jason Marquis to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jason. How you doing? What's up, guys? How's everything? Everything is great. So, you know, it's interesting because... Um, yeah, if you couldn't tell, Mark Roseman, AJ Carter is a little less, you know, revealing. But both of us are, are Jewish, and you know, most Jewish kids from New York celebrate their thirteenth birthday with a bar mitzvah. You, however, spent your thirteenth birthday leading your little league team to a first round victory in the Little League World Series over Chad Pennington and his Ohio team by throwing a three hitter, striking out eleven, not allowing a walk, and on top of that, you added three hits and three RBIs. What are some of the things you learned from Coach Philemon and that experience at such a young age? Well, obviously, uh, when you're a kid, you're out there playing the game, having fun, hanging out with your friends. Uh, but you also, obviously, you know, want to win. You want to take the game serious and you know prove the talent level that you have. Uh, but obviously, you know, my three little league coaches uh, from Dave Philemon, Goody Halverson, and Alan Laurel made a big impact on me from a young age. And really taught me the fundamentals, the basics, you know, helped me fall in love with the game and allowed me to grow as a player and really, you know, helped me turn into what I became later on down the road. Yeah, it's also interesting because you pitched your Tottenville High School Pirates to two consecutive New York City Public School Athletic League PSL titles, one of them at Chase Stadium, the other at Yankee Stadium. So at this point, you have pitched into championship games on ESPN. And then at both Yankee and Shea Stadium, how did you deal with that type of pressure at such an early age? I just really think I had a, a focus early on and really had a, a bigger picture goal in mind. You know, you always live in the moment and you're trying to win ball games at that given moment in time. But I think being exposed at a young age into literally World Series and, you know, you always have an idea of what you want to do. It allowed me to get comfortable in, on those big stages. I, I just feel like I was able to carry what I did from a young age. I really got engrossed in what I was doing. Uh, you know, try to black out everything around me other than the task at hand, and that was just trying to make a pitch. You know, if I'm in the batter's box, trying to uh, somehow defeat the pitcher with what he's throwing up against me. And if you get lost in that little world and lock in on what you're doing, I just think everything else around you becomes a blur, whether it's the other team, 30,000 fans, uh, distractions, and I think uh, you know that set me up to allow me to do that on on a higher stage. 
So over the course of the 16 years of doing this show, AJ and I have heard so many unique draft day stories. Yours is pretty special. So can you take us back to draft day? How you found out that you were drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the first round with the 35th selection overall? Yeah, it was 1996. I mean, that was a long time ago, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I had a high school. Uh, I, I remember it was the quarterfinal, the semifinal game. Uh, we were playing at Poly Prep High School. And obviously back then with the uh, the lack of cell phone, somebody had to stay. I mean, so somebody, one parent had to stay home and wait by the phone. There was none of these draft parties and TV spots and cameras on you and live Zooms. And it was... The good old days of, uh, you know, cordless phone, uh, parent waiting home. And when they got the call, obviously they drove to Brooklyn to the game and mid game, they sort of relayed the message to me on the round and picked that I was drafted. So, uh, once again, it was, I had to play a game. It was important to me. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful, obviously that the Braves made me that selection and gave me an opportunity to uh, further my career. It should be noted for the New York fans in the audience that, um, A, you won the most games of anyone drafted in that first round, career-wise. Uh, you were drafted 15 picks after the New York Yankees selected Eric Milton and five picks before the Mets selected left-handed pitcher Brendan Ben, who never pitched a, a game in who? the majors. Do you ever wonder what it might have been like had you been drafted by either New York team. Listen, you always have dreams as a kid to to play in a uniform that you rooted for. You know, I grew up a Yankee fan, but as time went on, I started to love the National League. I enjoyed hitting and to play in any one of those uniforms, the Mets or the Yankees definitely would have been a super highlight of my career, but obviously that opportunity never unfolded. So, uh it definitely would have been nice. You look back and say what if, but listen, everybody makes their choices, everybody has their reasons and you know, you, you just say, hey, this is the route they wanted to go. I got to focus on the route I'm going. And uh, all in all, I think it turned out pretty good. Speaking of the route that, that you're going, you signed a letter of intent to play for the University of Miami. And you passed that up to start your baseball career. Do you ever regret, especially growing up in a household where your mother was a teacher, not going to college? Yeah, I get that question a lot. I have, especially now... Uh, with my kids in the high school level, you're starting to see some real quality players. I've been around some players who are probably going to get drafted here in the next year or two. And uh, there was possibly one this past year. And you get that question on the, do you sign? Do you not sign? And I, I always try to tell the kids more of the options and tell them instead of telling them what to do. Uh, you know, but I believe that if you're going to go to college, it's not to further your or better your draft status. It's more your your student combined with an athlete. So if you're going to college, you got to be ready to do that schoolwork. You got to be ready to commit to that side of it, not only the baseball side. But I looked at it as I was a mature 17-year-old. Uh, I was ready to pursue my career. Uh, I weighed the options where I knew school and the college institution was always going to be there. I mean, if I go to college and get hurt, uh, you know, an unforeseen accident or whatever it may be on the field, off the field, and never really had a chance to pursue my career and my love, and that was becoming a major leaguer, that would have been more of a regret than anything else. Uh, yes, I, I talked to friends. They've had great college experiences, and you do, do lose some maybe f connections and 
relationships that otherwise maybe that I didn't have. But I look back, I have no regrets. Uh, and also, then again, I was I was a barely six foot right hander out of New York to go draft that high. You know, you, how much am I going to really raise my draft stock going out of college? Also, I mean, listen, I'll I'll always bet on Jason Marquis, and that's <laughs> there's never a doubt about that. But you also got to play numbers and pay percentages because that's when logic comes into play. So you mentioned, I mean, you're drafted by the Braves. And, and, you know, for years and years, the two organizations, at least National League-wise, that always seem to win and have a certain way and a mystique about them are the Braves and the Cardinals. You, you make your way up that Braves minor league ladder where your managers range from Brian Stickner, the current manager, uh, Paul Rungi, and Freddie Gonzalez. Who had the biggest influence within the organization for you on the way up? That's a great guess. That's actually a really good question. You know, you think back on your time. Uh, like I mentioned, I've been blessed to have great Little League coaches, great high school coaches, play on big stage from Little League World Series to uh, high school city championships at Yankee and, and Shea Stadium. And now you get to the minor league level. And, and you look across the board and you're like, man, I got Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz ahead of me. How, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to make this happen? So... Once again, it goes back to betting on yourself, putting in the work, finding a way to make it happen. But you come across some really, really good people, uh, and I don't want to discredit for not mentioning people's names, but I would say, you know, Snicker is probably my favorite manager that I had. He just had a way about treating an 18-year-old like he was a 35-year-old veteran, uh, understanding, hey, do your work, do your job. I'm watching. But I'm not going to be here to be a babysitter. This is your career. I'm going to provide information from you, for you, and it's yours for the taking. And then on on the pitching side, uh, Bruce Del Canton. He pitched oh, in wow. the big. He pitched in the big leagues for about Pirates. fourteen. Pirates, yeah. yeah, yeah, fourteen years. You know, obviously he passed away probably seven or eight years ago. We had a great relationship and really helped me with the mental side of the game, uh, understanding what I was good at doing what I was not good good at doing and just really how to refine my game to get me to the point I was. And there were so many great guys within the organization. I'm glad Hubbard, Chino Cartagena, Paul Rungley. The, the list could go on and on, but I, I just felt like not knowing other organizations, I felt like the Braves did a really, really good job of play development and allowing guys to reach their full potential. Through yeah. up Kent, I remember him well. Saw him pitch many a game yeah. against the Mets for sure. So you're called up to the majors by the Braves in June of 2000. You make your debut June 6, 2000, in relief of you mentioned one of the future Hall of Famers on that team, Tommy Glavin, against the Blue Jays. What do you remember most about the day? And it's interesting because obviously when you know Glavin's taken out for the pinch hitter, when Reggie Sanders pinch hits for him in the seventh, you're already warming up. You know you're going in. What what's going yeah. through your mind as you're throwing those final warm-up pitches and, and coming out of that bullpen? Well, you, you always feel like I, I always felt like I don't want to just come off as a, a cocky type of attitude, but I always had the belief that I was a major leaguer from a young age, especially when I got drafted. And I always felt like it was going to happen, and, and you just don't know when. You know, when obviously being 21 years old, you're like, all right, this is the time. I always envisioned myself as a starter, but I said, okay, get your feet wet do your job, make an impression. Uh, so when I get called up, it really uh, sort of hit me when the door opened and I started running out to the field. I think it was probably the only time in my career where I didn't feel like I had my legs underneath me jogging out to the mound. Uh, 
you know, it was at first I'm like, oh, okay, like, like are my legs here? Like, I didn't even know, like, you're, like you're floating on air. Uh, so that that's really when it hit me when that door opened and you took the jog out, you know, to come out and start the uh, the the inning after they took Tommy out. For for those listeners, you know, that aren't in New York, you're not coming off as uh, you know a cocky ball player, but you are coming off what we would expect is a Staten Islander. That's, that's all. Right. That's what we, we would expect. Nothing less, Jason. Right. No, well, hopefully I don't so, give Staten Island a bad name. Hopefully no, I don't have to fight on Staten Island. We're in New York. That's we're a good the, name for Staten Island. It's a good thing Island. for us. You know, Jason, in the minor leagues, one of your teammates was Mike Glavin, the brother of Tom. Yep. Your first game in the majors is. Mark said you came in in relief with Tom Glavin. Did that quirk ever enter your mind as, as you, you took the mound? No, not really. I mean, Tommy came from, uh, I believe, the Cleveland organization. Uh, Mike came from the Cleveland organization before he came over to Atlanta. And we just, you know, struck up a good relationship. He was our first baseman when I was in AA with uh, Greenville. So that relationship was already there. You know, there's, there's always these small little ties and, you know, six degrees of separation that somehow everybody's connected in some way or, the, or another. But, it, you know, it was cool that I was able to get a spring training or two under my belt with the big league club. So I got a familiar familiarity with all the players and felt comfortable once I, once I got to put on the big league uniform with those guys. So the following year, you become a starting pitcher, joining, you know, the Braves' celebrated staff with Hall of Famers Greg Maddox, Tommy Glavin, as well as Kevin Millwood, another excellent pitcher. Smoltz mm-hmm. was on that team also. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages on being on a staff with three of the greatest pitchers in, in Braves franchise history? Well, there are definitely way more advantages and disadvantages. I think let's start the disadvantage is just trying to live up to who they are, and you could get caught up trying to do what they're doing instead of being Jason Marquis or a young pitcher being themselves. You try to do things that they're doing, but they've had 16 years of experience by then at that point, you know, whether it be a combination of minor leagues and big leagues. So to me, that would be the one disadvantage in learning how to just control that. But more than anything, just learning how to be a big leaguer, how to attack hitters, how they prepare, what days they work out on. I mean, the list could go on and on that if you're around those guys and can't learn from those guys, there's something wrong with you. So, Come to 2001, and the season is interrupted by what happened to 9-11. Your sister, your fiancé, and your best friend all worked within two blocks of the World Trade Center. And after you learned of the attacks, you frantically tried to reach them. How did you eventually learn they were safe? What was going through your mind until you found that they were safe? Yeah, no, it was my wife's, well, at the time I found it, my wife's best friend, my best friend and my sister. So my okay. My, my wife was, she was, she might have still been in college or just right out of college working on Staten Island. Uh, but yeah, I mean, listen, back then, like I said, the, the cell phones weren't as prevalent. They just start out. So most people are home and you, you were able to reach landlines. They, they're the ones a little bit more researching, trying to figure out where everybody is. Uh, and once you, you just, you just got to, I guess, hope and pray and, and sit there and play the waiting game and not try to fill your head with, too many negative thoughts that, you know, the people you know and love do come out on the on the positive side. Not that that you're wishing bad for the people you don't know because you should never. That, that just that's bad. But obviously, everybody just turns their attention to personal connections first, usually, and then it turns to everybody else. It was such a heinous act that you, you really couldn't couldn't imagine something like that happened. And you know, in the moment, chaos. 
hectic as all could be. So you're just saying, hoping and praying that everything's okay. The season would re- resume, and baseball returns to New York on September 21st, and you're the starting pitcher that night. Given all that had transpired over the previous 10 days, including the loss of your childhood friend, the man who was the right fielder from that 1991 Little League World Series team, Michael Camerata, who was part of Engine Company 1 and lost his life on 9-11, how did you try to deal with keeping your emotions in check the days and hours leading up to that start against the Mets? Yeah, there's always a lot of thoughts and running through your head a little bit, a little bit of the anxiousness, the doubt, the unknown. But I think I was talking about this with uh, a few guys today, yesterday on the golf course. And obviously, this time of the year, it comes up as a topic of conversation. And with the game being played, the, so many days running and uh, making a big deal, obviously, with the 20-year anniversary, it's, it's – you sort of – and this is why coming in as a young age at 11, 12, playing in those big moments, you, you learn how to block out, learn how to block out emotions. I don't want to say you want to desensitize the the moment. You don't want to be uh, not have emotion, but you sort of that's part of training. Also, it's not only for me. You, you're training your mind more than you're training your body. Uh, I think that was a a big part of me. Of, of where I got to with my success playing baseball and being on the mound was understanding how to train your brain. I mean, because throughout your career, you deal with problems. You deal with whether it's family problems, marital problems, uh, you're not feeling good. You're having uh, opposing thoughts with maybe people in the organization. It, it, it's just natural. And I think you just learn when it's, when it's go time, when you step out on the field, ready to you know get loose and get ready for the game you, you just learn how to focus on the task at hand so you rely on that more than anything in those moments so one of the, the touching moments of that game came after the introductions and the team is around the, the foul lines and bobby valentine who's the managing the mets walks over to the brave side and hugs your manager bobby cox which led to players on both teams getting together and embracing can you walk us through your thoughts as, as you saw all of this develop and happen in the pregame? Well, I was warming up during that. So I I didn't really get to see any of it. I was in the bullpen warming up for the game. So obviously I've seen it numerous times on uh, replay and video over these last 20 years. And it just shows you, and if you hear Bobby say, like, who would ever thought our bitter rivals, we fight, we argue, we're, we're trying to take the pen from them before a game to be given hugs but that just shows you the magnitude the importance of that game on how we needed to unite and become one to move forward from something tragic that should have never happened it's interesting because over the years i think we might have had every single member of that med team on the show and we do get around to talking about that specific game uh, we never really heard from the Brave side. And this is the first year where there's been a lot of documentaries that have come out talking about it. And, and just recently I, I saw that um, Chipper Jones said he actually had a premonition when Piazza stepped in, into the batter's box that he was going to hit home run. He said he actually turned to the outfield and pointed over the fence. And, um, and, and Smoltz, I believe last night on, you know, during the telecast, said that it was somewhat fitting that the Mets won that game. When you see that ball that Piazza hits leave the yard, what what was going through your head? Well, you know what? I, 
after throwing six innings, I normally do my post-game routine, go in, ice, do my exercises and all that good stuff. You know, this is one of the games where I chose, obviously, not to do it. You know, came back into dugout because I never really got to feel the emotion of the stadium. I did a little bit before the game. It was very, I want to say uneventful, very quiet, very somber for, for the most part the whole game. There was a few cheers here and there. And I felt like like the seventh inning when I guess Liza, Liza Minnelli mm. gave the seventh inning performance, the crowd got, a, crowd got a little bit lively and people started cheering and smiling. And it felt like it was like, you know, okay, like it's okay to cheer. It's okay to cheer. And I feel, felt like watching the Piazza home run. It was almost like a sigh of relief, a deep breath for everybody in that stadium to be like, okay, it's okay to move on. I, and I actually heard an interview, which I found very interesting, of a, a wife, a mother of two, and her husband yeah. was one of the first responders who chose to give up his life and do such a heroic act. And after that home run, it was the first time in 10 days that she saw her two boys actually smile. Yeah. And that that's from a personal connection. And if, if that one home run, that moment, could create an emotion like that for two boys to go through a situation where they lost their father in that moment. And it was okay by their mother for them to smile and be happy. Us in the dugout had that okay moment, like, okay, this, this was the way it was supposed to be to help everybody sort of start the process of moving on and healing and getting back some sense of normalcy. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I heard that story as well. But it, it, and every time I hear it, it gives me chills. We mentioned in the open that you played for multiple teams after the Braves, and you had standout years with the Cardinals and Rockies. And when the Rockies qualified for the postseason in 2009, it marked the 10th time in 10 years, every year of your major league career to that point, that the team in which you pitched for made the playoffs. And you're the, actually the first player in baseball history to have been on a playoff team in each of the first 10 years of your career while playing for at least three different teams. There are players that go their entire career and don't play one single playoff game, never get to the postseason. When you think back on those first 10 seasons and the trips to the playoffs as well as pitching in a World Series, what are the things that stand out most about those, those opportunities for you? I was just – hopefully, hopefully one, I was part of the equation where I contributed to those teams to help get them to the postseason. That, that's one thing I take pride in where hopefully I made an impact – those first 162 games to get us to the point of making the playoffs. You know, hopefully every all 25 guys on the roster, hopefully they all contributed. That's one. Two, you just, you just, you, you learn, you, you just put in situations of, you know, being with the Braves. That's another thing. You put in a situation where you don't really have time to develop. So you had to right away, learn how to win. Cause if you didn't learn how to win, you weren't sticking around. So I think those first three or four years, were instrumental and I felt like I had an edge just from obviously the previous stages of my life like we mentioned winning two city championships literally world series uh knowing how to win and I think I I was able to fall back and draw on experiences as a youngster to bring that type of mentality at the highest level so anywhere I went I sort of had that mentality where I was a young guy looking up and leaning on the Big guys, as time was on, where maybe I was the veteran and young guys could lean on my knowledge. So it was, uh, listen, it was a great run. Even the teams I didn't make the playoffs, 
some great people, great relationships. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, obviously, you know, super proud of what I was able to accomplish. Yeah, I'm curious about one thing. In 2003, you traded to the Cardinals in mm-hmm. a deal that included Adam Wainwright, who's amazingly mm-hmm. still pitching, getting batters out today. Your pitching coach in St. Louis was Dave Duncan, and he yep. made some adjustments to you that really helped you and sort of really turned your career around. How different was he from the, the legendary Leo Mazzoni? Why do you think he was able to help you more than the legendary Braves pitching coach? Yeah, you know, listen, as a young guy, especially back then, I, I guess maybe the game has changed or life has changed where maybe the pecking order, paying your dues maybe doesn't exist as much anymore, which I think it should, should still because you're relying on people with experience to lead the way a little bit. But I just felt like going over there, he, he was able to help me mo- really def- help me define what type of pitcher I was. It wasn't like my stuff changed. I still threw 93 to 96. I still had a good sink on my ball. I still had a good slider. Uh, I think the game planning really – he was a really good game planner. And he helped me to really understand what I do really good. And I think I said, all right, you know, you have a little trust and, and you roll with it. And, you know, that's, you know, started the upward trajectory of my career. You know, throughout your career, you're also known as an excellent hitter. You have a Silver Slugger Award. Um, you called on to pinch hit. You were also called on to pinch run. You know, Shoei Atani has been able to put together a season, 44 home runs to go along with a 9-2 and record and a sub-4 ERA this season. Can you tell our audience, you know, some, that someone who's played the game at that level, just how difficult that is? He is a special talent as they come. He must do so much prep work, so much body work, get enough sleep. I mean, this guy is doing things that you never thought would be done. And that's just a testament to him. And and it probably started at 10, 11 years old. It didn't just start three years ago when he put on a professional uniform. Uh, but I, you, you can't even overstate what he's doing. I can't even put into words how difficult it is physically yet mentally to do what he's doing. So it, it's, it's fun to watch. I'm glad I'm able to watch and see somebody in this generation do something like that. I know there's going to be more that try to attempt it. Will it happen? Obviously, it's a possibility because somebody just showed they could do it. Hopefully, the longevity of it is able to withstand a little bit of time. But, you know, the body can only handle so much. So hopefully, uh, he's able to take care of himself because it is definitely fun to watch. Jason, thank you so much for your time. We didn't even get to half the stuff. We, you know, we could have done an entire right. show on just the, the Team Israel stuff. Uh, you know, every time I, I hear you, I, I, think you're, I, I think you are a perfect fit, whether it be for a, a podcast or, or show on our radio network or on Major League Baseball Network or the Mets you know, pre- or post-game show. We're talking about Staten uh, Island. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, really appreciate your time. And, you know, you were also a very big sense of pride for AJ and I during the, the qualifier for the WBC with Team Israel. So thanks so much for being on with us tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, guys, we could always do this again and catch up on the uh, stuff we missed out. And uh, hopefully I'll see hear, hear from you guys soon. Okay. You definitely will. Jason Markey, former Major League Baseball player, former uh, ace of the 2017 Israel WBC qualifying team.